2: Hello and welcome to the all-new weekly media podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, Jeff Zucker, one of the most powerful media execs in America, shocks the CNN newsroom. ITV News Washington correspondent Robert Moore tells us why. The UK radio industry is still reshaping in the pandemic with big changes at times and Radio One. Uh, Adam Bowie is on hand to help. Uh, Plus all that and a little Joe Rogan chat too. Why puzzles matter to newspapers. And in the media quiz, we look at the other shows doing a BBC Three. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. So this week, we've seen Spotify on the back foot as subscribers and musicians react to their hit show, The Joe Rogan Experience. Over in TV, we've had the relaunch of BBC Three, kicking off with a programme that was pre-recorded, presumably to avoid the fate of GB News' opening night. Over at Channel 4, they welcomed Andrew Neil for a special with talks about a new series ongoing. Plus, Ofcom are investigating their subtitle, Snafu. In print, newspaper group Archant's back up for sale as its private equity owner, R Capital, looked for a buyer after only 18 months in. And of course, all the news channels were excitedly broadcasting the arrival of a black and white PDF, the author being one Sue Gray. Uh, But let's cover some of the big stories of the media week, the things that we've all been talking about. Joining me today is Washington correspondent of ITV News, Robert Moore. Uh, you were on an RTS panel this week talking about your role in the capital riots on the reporting side, I should add. Um, a year on, is it something that still influences your reporting or how you feel about the, the
0: city you're in? Sure. I mean, look, January the 6th was, uh, was a sort of big impact story for me, but also for ITV News and potentially for British television. You know, I've tried to use it and become an advocate for this sort of style of British television television journalism that is at the heart of what we and Sky and the BBC and Channel 4 do, which is eyewitness journalism. And if you live here, Matt, you realise that you know there there is another model for television news, which is studio and panel discussions. And I'm not an advocate for that. I I think what we do in Britain, eyewitness reporting, getting reporters onto the front line, telling that story to our audience back home, that is exactly a, a superior form of television news. That's what I'm an advocate of. And if january the 6th could be leveraged to show that uh, and to show its superiority over these endless discussion panels that are a feature of american t- cable tv news and that's great so i see january the 6th through that prism now really as, as a sort of advocacy for british journalism
2: i mean you you obviously went uh, into the capital whereas actually other news operators didn't and I, I read that you sort of assumed that they were going to be somewhere
0: else that's true. Yes. So, we, you know, we were kind of embedded ourselves with the mob, if you like. You know, we were surrounded by those Trump supporters. They stormed the Capitol. I stormed the Capitol with them. As some, <laughs> as some American wit said, I was the first uh, um, a Brit to storm Congress since the War of 1812. So, so I take some credit for that. But, uh, you know, um, it is true that other people were stuck in studios or doing live reporting. Other people were in sort of, rooms and they had to stay there because of the sort of threat. So, um, yeah, you know, we did what we do for a living, which is, you know, report uh, on the front line and bring that news as quickly and as accurately as possible to, uh, to a British TV audience.
2: I mean, ITN's been having a spin in sort of somewhat of a purple patch recently, obviously Partygate scoops, um, extension of ITV News, the, the, the 6.30 bulletin now going an hour. Um, I mean, you're obviously in America, but what's the, what's the mood like at uh, ITV, ITV Towers and with the teams?
0: Yeah, I think really strong. I think you're right to describe it as a purple patch. I mean, the the sort of work that Paul Brand is doing on the Partygate story, but the whole political team at ITV News, Robert Peston, obviously, but um, there is a sort of spring in our step. Um, January the 6th was part of that, but, but also Dan Hewitt's sort of, you know, technically rather unglamorous reporting on social housing conditions. You know, we own that because, you know, it's giving people a voice who otherwise aren't heard in the sort of, you know, echo chambers of, of social media and, and television news. So it's we're just delighted that that we're kind of on on several fronts: politics, uh, sort of social affairs with Dan Hewitt's reporting, overseas reporting with our stuff on January the sixth, but our other stuff in Ukraine and and so on. We're proud that that's kind of having an impact and being recognised. I mean, we don't you know work for you know, peer acclaim, let's say, put it that way, Matt, or for awards. But, you know, if there's recognition for the newsroom, for for the sort of agenda that we have, then we'll take it uh, with pleasure. And
2: joining me and Robert, we also welcome back to the show, TV and audio critic, Scott Bryan. Hello. Uh, Scott, you've been writing about the relaunch of BBC Three for the New York Times. Was it hard to make sense of that story for a US audience? Oh,
3: yes. I think because, (laughs) for one thing, they don't really know what BBC3 is, I think also because they don't really know what iPlayer is. But the reason why I wrote the story and why they were interested in it in the first place was I think the fact that at a time when the assumption is that all audiences are heading just towards streaming, streaming's the endpoint, point, streaming's the future, this was a, a channel that had made that transition to an, an entirely stream-based future and now they were going back the other way. And I think it looks at the fact that, at a time when there is so much competition. I think people, A, really want curation, but also broadcasters still have a bit of an upper hand when it comes to um, having millions of people viewing at the same time, because they're able to have those live collective viewing experiences. And I think that's quite universal um, uh, for the US and for the UK. And what was also fascinating is that when they announced that they were going to launch for channel, or at least in the run up, they were pouring through different data. And Fiona Campbell, who is the controller of uh, BBC uh, Free, was talking to me about how they were looking at US trends and at a time when uh, streaming takes up about 25% of overall audience engagement, there is still a huge amount of audiences who still tap into a traditional cable-style setup. And I think a final thing to say in this is I was uh, chatting to um, a great uh, ac- academic on on the su- subject, Patrick Barwise, and he was talking about how what we're seeing now is a transition from um, essentially, analog, you know, people watching normal TV to going to a hybrid model. There's the assumption that everyone's going towards, um, you know, just pure streaming. But actually, we're watching a bit of broadcast, a bit of streaming, uh, a bit of YouTube. Kind of a collection of all three. We're not giving up one medium for another.
2: Well, someone and a company that's been very much at the forefront of uh, multimedia and is about to launch a big new multimedia product is CNN. Um, And the previous boss, well, the boss up till yesterday of of CNN, Jeff Zucker, had a lot of power, but shot colleagues by resigning on Wednesday after almost 10 years at the broadcaster. Um, Robert, what's happened to Jeff?
0: Yeah, look, a real—I mean, not just a media story, but a sort of shocking media story, at least on this side of the Atlantic. You know, Jeff Zucker, understand, is not just a powerful uh, media figure here, but he's also the really charismatic boss of CNN. You know, there are reporters and anchors here who, who would sort of uh, put down their life for him. But he has now admitted to this unethical relationship uh, with a fellow CNN executive, Alison Gollust. Uh, She was sort of head of marketing at CNN. And it's not just that sort of lack of transparency that has cost Jeff Zucker uh, his job, um, but also what people are here calling the kind of blast radius of the whole range of CNN scandals. Because remember, Chris Cuomo, their their influential, powerful 9pm anchor and host, uh, he had to resign having been found that he was advising his brother, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who was having his own... Uh, set of scandals. Uh, So when Warner Media lawyers uh, looked at the Andrew Cuomo, Chris Cuomo axis, they then stumbled on the Jeff Zucker uh, affair. Uh, So um, it is a pretty tawdry suggestion out here now that sort of uh, Chris Cuomo is trying to bring the temple down with him, that he, you know, even though he was close at one point to Jeff Zucker, that Chris Cuomo is so angry about his own dismissal that he had incriminating evidence against Jeff Zucker and decided to expose that relationship. In other words, you know, there is this sort of cycle of revenge and acrimony at the very heart of CNN. And as, as you have pointed out just now, I mean, this is an amazingly important moment for CNN. They're just sort of weeks away from launching CNN, plus their kind of uh, highly prized new streaming service. That's a very competitive marketplace now. They enter that uh, without any sort of uh, leadership at the top of the company. Uh, so it, it's a big issue, this. And um, it means that sort of, CNN's many sort of media critics here can circle uh, with their sort of claws out and their teeth ready, because um, in this sort of toxic political landscape, CNN uh, is a target, of course, to the Trump supporters and to others on the political right. And this has given uh, the political right in America tons of ammunition to fire directly at the heart of CNN's ethics and credibility.
2: I mean, CNN uh, employees and, and particularly CNN talent are big Jeff Zucker fans, aren't they? So I, they call internally, he's called Jay-Z, which I love. <laughs> and um, they they like him and a lot of them have been hired by him. I mean, if you're, if you're talent in front of the camera, surely it's got to be a bit, a bit unsettling for you as well. And also coming up to a merger with Discovery. So that's that's on the horizon as well.
0: Exactly. So that that's this kind of the sort of... Um... Almost a perfect storm for CNN. They've got CNN Plus about to be launched. They've got a merger with Discovery. Uh, they've got talent that's now feeling disorientated and angry about how Jeff Zucker was was pushed out. Uh, Jake Tapper was talking to uh, at a sort to of town hall meeting to try and calm the the um, the waters here, but in fact, in fact, apparently said that actually, uh, you know, Jeff Zucker should never have been fired. So there's there is sort of disharmony amongst the sort of top line talent at CNN, and who knows where this. Uh, this fallout is, but it's given Fox News and the political right here just a ton of ammunition. And so it's 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 a really uh, it's a sort of rare and, and potentially pretty uh, damaging uh, set of circumstances for CNN to try and navigate uh, all of their new projects and ventures.
2: I mean, Scott, we don't really have these sort of super executives in in telly here in in the UK as much as we do in the US. I don't know who who the the similar person would be here that could, could, could rock a scandal like this.
3: No, not really. I mean, this is the thing. I turned on to CNN yesterday and it's so weird to see CNN reporting about itself in a kind of twist. But also the case that CNN has got a style of presentation where it likes to kind of cover politics in a way a bit like sports you only had to watch the election with the sound effects that were coming in for every single part and I was staying up until 5am trying to find out whether this small little district in one tiny state that actually in the grand scheme of things had no bearing on the overall presidential result um, were um, about to go and call in their results. It's it, it's Jeff's influence I think in terms of having this kind of suspension um, and live element on absolutely everything making you feel that you have to be part of that moment and of course I guess detractors are saying that actually um, the discourse within the US has has been worsened by the fact that, I mean, firstly, for giving Trump a platform, but also just in terms of having two different st- um, um, styles of presentation um, with people on either end yelling at each other. And I think that's mm. kind of, it, it feels for me with him stepping down, but also CNN's new foray into CNN Plus, it sort of feels as if we're coming to an end of an era. CNN's ratings mm. ever since um, uh, Joe Biden um, became president has gone down significantly. There's been a transition away from cable. I mean, it still makes an awful lot of money for CNN, but I'm sort of thinking, well, where are we going to go next? It, it doesn't feel like CNN's going to be right at the um, the em- emphasis of it um, for the time being.
0: Yeah, I think Scott, you're absolutely you, you're absolutely right, Scott. I mean, that 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 is actually the other element of the perfect storm we haven't even mentioned, which is the plummeting cable news ratings. Here, you know, go, Donald Trump's era in the White House was sort of gold dust for. Uh, uh for cable television news now he's gone we've got the biden administration and and the result has been an absolute sort of car crash for ratings here for cable television news so that's that's the other element that's got quite rightly mentions but i mean there's so many ironies in all of this uh, it's sort of jeff zucker of course and donald trump were close friends you know he, uh, he brought donald trump into sort of prime time television um at the apprentice now they're sort of sworn enemies. Chris Cuomo and Jeff Zucker were good friends. Now they're sworn enemies. One bringing down the other, uh, one sacking the other. So it really is a, a sort of. It shows just how, in a way, how incestuous sort of a cable television news is here. Um, and there is an opportunity for a reset, but I, but man, I wouldn't suggest that's going to happen because they are really seem to be sort of doubling down on this sort of uh, sort of polarized, hyper partisan sort of. Uh, panel driven network news and that's what i'm a big uh, opponent of and that's why i think the the british television model is, is so superior to having you know 10 people in a studio all shouting at each other which produces a lot of noise but r- remarkably little light all in separate boxes um also i think what's interesting is at least
2: it provides good content for a new HBO max series so at least they've got that internally <laughs> that
3: would be good for There's funny more material for the morning show season three when that when that turns around yes next absolutely year.
2: yeah um, another of Zucker's proteges was actually Joe Rogan. He hired him for the game show Fear Factor, uh, which partly established Joe. Uh, but he's now been getting Spotify into trouble with accusations that his podcast includes misinformation around the pandemic, with uh, musicians, podcasters, and subscribers starting to boycott the app. Um, Robert, even the White House got involved with some of Joe Rogan's misinformation.
0: I think. You're right. They did. I mean, this is because, you know, Joe Rogan is just sort of the most uh, high profile case of this. But what we've got in America, you know, in this sort of media landscape here is a complete collision between sort of First Amendment purists who believe that anything should be said, that free speech is the most important tenet of American democracy. And those who say, no, hang on a second, you know, we are now in a world of sort of toxic misinformation and we have to be careful and we have to sort of police what's out there. Uh, At least, uh, you know, to be cautious, what's out there on social media and other other sort of streaming platforms. And so, Joe Rogan has sort of touched into this. So, no wonder the White House is involved. I mean, if you remember, Neil Young withdrew his music uh, because describing the Joe Rogan podcast as the home of life-threatening COVID misinformation. Joni Mitchell and others followed suit. There's now kind of lots of sort of attempts to sort of uh, to boycott Spotify. But I think Spotify. You know, is saying, "Look, we'll try and correct misinformation where we can." Uh, their CEO has described this as a sort of learning opportunity, um, and has suggested that you know Spotify will 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 uh, improve its sort of services, but doesn't need to change its fundamental model. So, yeah, Joe Rogan is just the sort of most popular podcast figure here by a country mile. But he's touching on something, a much more sort of bigger, broader sort of media issue of of freedom of speech versus sort of uh, hate speech, misinformation for fake news and so on. So it touches on a really kind of controversial, toxic part of, of the media landscape here.
2: Well, Scott, I mean, this is a real problem for Spotify. I mean, it's not even a question of if they're a platform or a publisher because, you know, they have a deal with Rogan. They pay him $100 million. Uh, Have they handled this well?
3: No. I mean, I think it's just been a big, (laughs) a big old mess from the start. But it's also one to me that has felt like it's been in the making for months. I mean, Joe Rogan's comments about the coronavirus and having guests who are um, deniers or might be sort of spreading misinformation has been going on for months. It literally took artists removing their music from the platform for really, I think Spotify to, to take some action. And, and, you know, there is this wider never ending debate about how much are. Um, providers responsible for the content that's on their platform. But the fact that 100 million had crossed hands within this, but also how people who are completely unconnected to it, um, ordinary members of the public trying to listen to their music, are now starting to think, well, where's some of my songs gone? Um, I don't listen to Joe Rogan. Why am I being affected? You know, it, it has all of the... Um, uh, the basis for something that is going to be a real headache for Spotify. And as as you know, Matt, they've been, you know, emphasising a lot more that, Um, uh, podcasting is the future for them. Audio is the future. They've been investing a lot in in audio. And this is the first time that it's now come around to scare them because now they're a bit like, oh, the thing that we're really thinking our future is, is now a possible liability.
2: There was some great reporting from The Verge today about some kind of internal uh, staff meetings uh, with the the chief exec and and other team members. And a lot of the podcast team are doing really great stuff uh, around... Um, black lives matter around bringing in underrepresented groups to podcasting and there was some reporting that actually you know how can they attract those sorts of people if they're if they're alongside Joe Rogan or if the the, the platform takes a more uh, sort of sort of centrist view of saying hey actually we're just here for everybody you know is that really sustainable Robert can they can they get away with just saying hey we're just we're just we're just here for everyone
0: it's very difficult for them I mean uh, you know what Spotify and Daniel Eck have said who's the CEO is that they're going to add advisories you know they're going to try and put things into context to try and help inform people who are listening to sort of controversial podcasts a bit like other sort of you know Facebook and others are trying to do but you know I I don't know if Scott feels that that's adequate I mean is it you know is it when lives are at risk and when the question is you know, about vaccine scepticism, is adding advisories sufficient or, or should Spotify be, be tougher? It's an excellent question. And I don't think any sort of streaming service, any platform has adequately uh, dealt yet with this issue. I mean, would you give high marks to anybody, Scott, for, for how they're handling this sort of moment?
3: Not really. I mean, you still see on Instagram some... People who spread misinformation, given verified status, who are allowed to propel their info all the time. And of course, they might have a smaller audience than Joe Rogan, but those are people who will tell other people. And I think just sticking a sticker on it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be fine. I think, on a completely unrelated matter, this is the first time that I can be smug as an Apple Music subscriber. (laughs) (laughs) It had to happen, it had to happen
2: eventually. Uh, Okay, on to radio, and the quarterly radio figures are out. Uh, What does it mean for the big networks? And new upstarts like Times Radio and Greatest Hits. While well, strapping, because earlier I spoke to fellow RageR enthusiast Adam Bowie about all the latest ups and downs.
1: You can't fail to notice Radio 1, I think it was a bit disappointing for them, although. We can talk about Greg James separately. I know you were highlighting uh, certainly capitals, share issues, and that's maybe related, similar problems to Radio 1. It's, it's interesting there. There's definitely been some changes, and this is probably pandemic, but we don't. you can never be entirely clear. But there's some changes in the way mornings, the the peaks are happening from breakfast to mid-morning. The absolute peak is still at breakfast. it's still at eight o'clock. that is the biggest single listening occasion of the day. But you know for some stations, Radio 2 notably where Ken Bruce is bigger than Zoe, and actually this time for the first time, somewhere like LBC where James O'Brien has just just crept past Nick Ferrari, we're seeing mornings being and depending on how you define mornings, morning being as big or, or even bigger than uh, breakfast in some places. So there's some of the key things. And then there's lots of individual results from some of the stations, looking at things like how Times has been doing and uh, Boom Radio.
2: So if something like Boom, um, New station for over 65s or so over 60s, they had their first book last quarter up for reach a little bit, but big jump in hours. And th- I guess that's very important for them, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're not if you're not aware, reach gets you listeners. The amount of time they spend listening listening gets you money if you're a commercial station. So hours are important, or share, as it sometimes talked about. And I think when you've got a first radar, it's always the case. Everyone's waiting for the first radar for a new station. You get very excited about it, and I think they, were, I know they were very happy and very pleased with their first one last time. But then sometimes it can fall back and um, you, you know put the champagne back on ice in the fridge so to see some gain continued gain is great and then to get those commercially valuable hours actually quite significantly up 36 percent quarter on quarter you know they'll be absolutely over the moon i'm sure with those numbers
2: probably not so over the moon at uh, times radio who had probably a, a very solid start in the sort of low 600s but they, they've fallen back a bit haven't they in their second their second book
1: yeah they have and i think they're just still over half a million which i think is probably a nice you know all these numbers are round and immaterial in the scheme of things but everyone likes to be able to say measure half millions those kind of things but but yeah, obviously they've been around for longer. They they were that unfortunate case of launching just before the pandemic, so it took them quite a long time to get their first numbers, being around for a while, but it's it's interesting given the amount the importance of politics on that station and that this has not been a politically inactive time, and one Rajar does not make a summer to absolutely (laughs) you know mix and match metaphors here so i'd I'd sit around and see how they do next time because this quarter feels even more politically active than last quarter and you would expect times to benefit off the back of that
2: and sort of upstairs from times radio is virgin radio which has obviously chris evans on, on the breakfast show uh, you worked there in a sort of early incarnation uh, of, of the station and with Chris I imagine as well Absolutely. Um, yep. they're in kind of an interesting place aren't they because the, the, they're doing alright there's not a lot of coverage about, about them trying to compete with everyone else they're, they're just carrying on
1: yeah they are I mean it, they've crept up a little bit I think Evans himself is back over a million this quarter you know he, he's there's actually a whole raft of Virgin stations they've got anthems, they've got Groove and they've got things like that but they're, they're sort of getting on by ticking on by but I think the, the the question there is is there a sustainable business model they poached graham norton not that long ago and he his numbers are, are nowhere near what they used to be for radio two and that's even though doing two shows compared to one
2: the data said that he's got he's he's got half a million graham norton's got in with has half a million listeners in this in this sort of second book for him
1: that's right yeah and I don't know off the top of my head what you used to have at, but you it was many millions at, over mm. at radio two and I, th- I think the challenge there is to get from their big superstars through to the rest of the station. And then there's the business model anyway that they're doing, which is, along with times, is, broadly speaking, avoiding ads and doing...
2: Uh, well, one thing I hear is that on Monday, there will start to be some ad blocks in Chris Evans's mm. breakfast show.
1: I'm not surprised. You, <laughs> you do need to monetize it. They monetize all, you know, other stations, you know, I mean, uh, uh, talk sport, talk radio, they take ads, so... Um, I'm sure the upcoming Talk TV will take ads. Yeah, that's probably a sensible thing to do. I mean, you've got to amortise and you've got to amortise his cost, his uh, salary somehow, I would think.
2: And just kind of thinking kind of post-COVID and looking at the data, radio is now very much digital. When we look at the sort of share of listening, it's sort of 60% odd digital reach is about 80% compared to analogue being about, I think, 60, 65 in the dcms digital and audio review the government said that the uk radio industry should be preparing the ground for a possible analog switch off in 2030 now this is obviously brought up all the time now that's a decent chunk away but is the industry sort of on track for switching over to digital just naturally without having to turn off all the transmitters
1: to an extent there is uh, it is i think you know Is you look at stations choosing whether or not to stay on AM the BBCs shut down a number of local radio AM transmitters and i think over time you're going to see more of that naturally taking place i think it's interesting to see this is not quite the same but see see what Bauer's been doing this week in terms of turning or beginning to force you down particular digital things for logged in listening and losing access to their stations on services like TuneIn and as those digital platforms become more valuable as well as the costs involved in being on multiple platforms. I think businesses are going to make those decisions for themselves. It, it will happen. You know, now so there will always be someone who jumps in. You know, if someone lets go of a, a frequency, someone will have that frequency. And would you know, no one's going to hand in probably their London FM frequency anytime soon, I don't think, because someone can probably make some money on a London FM frequency still. But a lot of it's going to happen much more easily than maybe we think.
2: Uh, that was Adam Bowie. And for the radio heads out there, if you want to hear us do a proper warts dive into all the figures, including the problems at Radio 1, there's an extra 20 minutes exclusive to our patrons. Just head to patreon.com slash media pod. Choose a level of support and you'll get that deeper dive. That's patreon.com slash media pod. It's there waiting for you right now. Uh, and with that, we'll be back with more media news and of course our weekly quiz after this. This episode of The Media Podcast is proud to be supported by Riverside, the best podcast and video recording platform out there. And we say that with confidence, as we've been using Riverside to record The Media Podcast for over a year now. It's easy to send out links to guests, check their set up right and get recording quickly. The audio quality is better than you get with Zoom and it's all uploaded in real time. HD quality audio and video, if that's your thing. And if there's a dodgy internet connection, you don't have to worry because there's a great backup feature you can rely on to get the best show possible. High quality, reliable audio and video recording. What's not to like? Uh, Riverside is used by brands from Microsoft to TED Talks, Marvel to the New York Times, but more importantly, by this show. To give it a go, head to riverside.fm and use the code MediaPod for $15 off any Riverside subscription. There's a link in the show notes, but all you need to know is riverside.fm with the code MediaPod for $15 off. Welcome back. Robert and Scott are still with me and it's time for some media news in brief. Uh, Wordle, the puzzle game that has set social media alight, has been bought by the New York Times. Uh, They're your paymasters as well, Scott. Why have the New York Times bought
3: Wordle? (laughs) I think it's just because when it comes to games, they are able to knock it out of the park. They just announced um, that they hit the the milestone early of having 10 million subscribers. But when they drilled down for numbers, there were about 200... there were about 200,000 people who were specifically only using the gaming part of the website, spelling bee, crosswords, um, a kind of a core part of their model in the same way buying the athletics are for sports. So I think by um, buying words, which is controversial, particularly the fact that they said the word that it would be a free in then um, uh, bracket initially um it's caused a bit bit of um unsettling because people don't want to think of it being behind a paywall i guess it depends on what the new york times is going to use for it are they going to use it as a way of harvesting information by getting people's emails to keep it free is it going to be put behind the paywall is it going to be linked to the wider uh, new york times gaming offering i think those are questions that I think they're still trying to work out themselves. But I think the fact that it's been growing substantially, the fact that you can only um, play once a day, means that the New York Times obviously thinks there's longevity in this.
2: I mean, it seemed to me, you know, they, they said the deal went for the kind of low, low millions. Well, to buy a thing which apparently has sort of 10 million page views a day, that seems a, an excellent deal uh, on behalf of The New York Times. Uh, they announced that their subscriber numbers have passed 10 million, partly uh, due to adding in the Athletics subscription numbers, which they acquired um, uh, at the end of the last year, beginning of this year. Um, uh, and that's a publication that's traditionally been burning through cash, uh, but now backed by the New York Times, maybe they can e- sort of express it into uh, profitability, combine it with their other subscription offers into a kind of super bundle. Um, I mean, the New York Times has made a lot of money from subscription. It's really turned the corner. There was worries that it would drop after Trump, but actually it's been increasing. There's gaming, there's cookery.
0: Uh, is subscription the future of news, Robert? Well, I think you're exactly right to say, look, uh, and we, it kind of relates to our previous conversation about how sort of cable news networks are struggling with an audience. I mean, the, the interest in news has, you know, rapidly kind of uh, diminished here since the end of the trump years and what the new york times i think is doing highly successfully is reorientating itself towards games and as you say towards cooking shows and lifestyle products i mean they're trying to create an entire kind of experience uh, for you know anybody who goes onto the new york times website and i think wordle is is a classic example of that i mean it's you know we don't associate uh, the new york times kind of with that idea you know we we associate them with sort of in-depth journalism but they're having to reinvent themselves in the post-Trump era and wordle and cookery is a classic example of that and and if people spend more of their day on the New York Times website then they will be delighted they will be able to monetize that and and there's no question they're going from strength to strength uh, it, it, arguably too strong and, and squeezing out too many small players who are trying to make a living in the same in the same space as well
2: well back to the UK um, deadlines reported that UK viewers spent triple the time watching the BBC compared to Netflix I think this was in some Enders analysis um, Scott what do you make of uh, the, the BBC uh, beat down of netflix
3: i mean it is really interesting Enders are very trusted in terms of having um deep kind of insightful analysis when it comes to the rise of the streaming giants but also we've seen over the last uh, few months um barb of course who measure audiences getting in on the game trying to see how big um our uh, viewing patterns are in terms of watching streaming giants for years i think we've had this sense it's been a real frustration of mine about how streamers are kind of this big beast that are being, you know, watched by millions, but it's really hard to know how many of us are watching them. It feels a lot of PR. They pluck numbers to show how successful they are using metrics that aren't transparent that make them look good. And, of course, all companies do this, but Netflix and other streamers are especially guilty of it. And now I think we're seeing a bit more transparency, particularly that the BBC, who, of course, Um, are in this incredibly difficult scenario of now having um, the licence fee frozen under inflation for two years. Um, are now having to um, uh, have also arguments on top of that they should become a subscription service. And then you're, you're seeing data that suggests that, yes, they are incredibly important um, parts of our live streaming giants, but they're not really going to completely upend the whole market. There was other analysis by Enders that s- suggested that many people still see public service broadcasters as being the primary form of watching TV, and Netflix and streaming is um, seeing as, essentially as a accompaniment um, a, a sort of an add-on rather than the replacement for those sort of channels. So, so, so it raises a lot of questions. I think the, the other main takeaway very quickly is I would be nervous if, if I was at Channel 4 because what it does show the, this um, analysis is that um, people are watching Channel 4 as much as they are watching Netflix. And of course, we're coming at a time when the, the government um, are going to be proposing the future for Channel 4 and the government's argument is, well... We want uh, uh, Channel Four to be more compa- uh, to be on the same sort of competitiveness as streamers, and of course, if they're being seen to be beaten by Netflix and rivals, then of course that makes Channel Four's position of staying in public ownership weaker.
2: Uh, yeah and Rob I mean Scott's talking there about uh, some of the, the changes obviously that have been proposed for the BBC um, they're now going to be on the front foot particularly 100 years of the BBC good opportunity for them to, to demonstrate all their good uh, did you manage to catch their new two minute promo video that's been um, scrolling around social media
0: this week? Yeah for sure I did I, obviously an impressive sort of counterblast from the BBC reminding people that there is such a thing as you know what they would call here the kind of water cooler moment it's sort of you know a sense of a shared narrative that there is something some institution that being, brings people together and of course the BBC you know is in a strong position to say look you know in their range of shows in their range of on-air talent they are able to bring together a sort of a national conversation something that is notably lacking here in the United States where we've got two kind of political sides who are just kind of warring with each other and we've ended up with this sort of a toxic not just Political landscape, but also sort of cultural landscape as well. So, yeah, I think the BBC's pitch is a strong one. And, you know, within that, ITV and others are going to say, look, we're part of the conversation and it's important that. that you know we have diversity in the media, and that our, the journalism of ITV News and Channel Four News is important too, and Sky News. In other words, you know there is a role for plurality as well as to accept the uh, importance of a sort of central broadcaster like uh, the BBC. So look, let, let's you know enjoy the BBC, but let's make sure that they have to work for their money and give them tremendous competition. If, for example, in the area I work in, in television news, let's make sure they have to you know they win their scoops and, and have to fight for their because it's competition that's going to be the best for the for the British viewer, isn't it?
2: Well, talking about funding, um, just quickly, Google and Facebook could be forced to agree a price with newspapers for using their stories under new laws being potentially drawn up by the government. This was according to The Times. This is very similar to what's happened in Australia, where um, where big digital companies had to do deals with the big uh, Australian news providers. Um, Do you think that's something that that should come to the UK? Should Facebooks and the Googles of the world um, pay newspapers for their content? Or is it up to the newspapers
0: whether they decide to, to let Google? Spider their stuff. Well, look, I mean, we want sort of fairness. So, you know, if our journalism is out there, uh, you know, we'd like it, you know, people to acknowledge it it, it comes from ITV News. Um, What's unclear, I think, you know, genuinely unclear, is whether um, you know the funding model that sort of is based on the sort of Australian style media bargaining code is going to help uh, video journalism, or is it just a payment plan for newspaper articles that are put out on on the other publishers platform. So I think a lot of this needs to be worked through. Um, Smarter people than me are looking at the sort of funding models. But all I'll say is, you know, where we do journalism, you know, we want it widely distributed as possible. But on the other hand, you know, it it makes, you know, gathering television news is expensive. You know, running foreign bureaus is expensive. Having a fully staffed newsroom with, you know, well-informed, experienced executives is expensive. So, you know, we need to make sure that there is an adequate funding model that brings, you know, the world to the British television viewers' uh, front room. Scott, you worked for BuzzFeed for
2: a, a good number of years. I mean, they sort of fought their way up into, into the Google rankings or onto to, to people's apps and, and smartphones. Do you think the newspapers just being particularly moany about this and are just um, using their mates at the government to give them a load of cash they don't
3: deserve? Well, I mean, the, the issue, I think, is that when Google and Facebook make a change, no matter how small... It can completely upend a company's fortunes. And, and with BuzzFeed, I think I could talk about this as an ex- employee, <laughs> but sure, why not? Is that the moment that they change the algorithm from being primarily less uh, news led? There was a massive drop off on traffic and, and, and long term plans for a business um, in, that they were making at the time had to be rewritten in weeks because of a decision done by a company that they are involved in. And if you are involved in a company um, like um, many others, you're trying to um, have a, a mass audience, but also you're trying to work out how other companies are kind of working. And if they change very quickly, um, then that can really adverse. Uh, adversely affect you and also I think that when you looked at what happened in Australia it ended up being a bit of a PR disaster for Facebook because it ended up with them pulling all news for a short time. But instead of like drawing attention to what the government were planning, I think it put the focus back on Facebook of how powerful they were because loads of people were pointing out, hang on, how can the company that's having a spat with the government can suddenly stop me sharing news on Facebook to people who I care about or on issues that I care about? So, so I think that this has a. I think they'll be looking at what happened in Australia, possibly with a bit of fear, trying not to replicate that because it can end up becoming a a bit of a big a, a big argument with no clear real endpoint.
2: Uh, and all of that though brings us to the tenuous world of the media quiz. <laughs> this week, it's entitled the launch time news, in honor of the relaunch of BBC Three. We bring you three media properties that are either on demand, going linear. Okay. Or linear now going on demand. Okay, so all you've got to do is name the media brand. Three rounds, buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, Scott, you will say...
3: Scott, I wish I had a buzzer. Oh,
2: was this in the email? <laughs> and no, that's fine. Uh, Scott, you'll say Scott. And Robert, you will say... Robert? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, let's play the Launch Time News. Right, which on demand service is launching a magazine?
3: Oh, um, Scott. Scott Netflix yes what are they launching they're launching a um, sort of a uh, magazine aimed at kids I I think which is trying to um, uh, be focusing on that and like they've been doing this before it uh, it gives me a lot of memories you know to when Sky did it remember in Mm. like the noughties they had a magazine that went out to every Sky subscriber in the the country but the best bit about it is that they wrote on the front cover that it is the most um, circulated magazine The most uh, popular magazine in the country, disregarding the fact that subscribers of Sky had no choice. They were getting it anyway. So (laughs) so it makes me wonder about what Netflix have a plan for it. They already do have an existing magazine, but you have to opt in. It mainly goes to people who work in the industry. And I think for Netflix, it sort of works because they don't have to deal with journalists. They can kind of do it themselves, market it entirely how they want. And kids is
2: hugely important to streamers because it stops stops churn. Uh, so reinforcing that is um, is good business. Right, uh, number two, which German news channel <laughs> ah, has Robert. come
0: off the air this Robert, week? Robert. Robert. Yeah, I can have a go at that one. Um, yeah, I mean, um, not only has uh, Deutsche Welle uh, been fired by uh, out of out of. Uh, Russia, but it was it was based on the fact that RT has fallen foul of German regulators and um, has been uh, had its had its license revoked. So that's the the story on the sort of Berlin Moscow uh, argument.
2: Uh, And I mean, RT's had a messy relationship with national
0: regulators, hasn't it, over over the last few years?
2: I mean, does it have a strategy other than
0: what's driven by the Kremlin? No, I think it's, uh, by all accounts, it is, uh, you know, it is a, a spokesperson essentially for the Kremlin, you know, Kremlin run. Uh, and I think it, it fell out with, uh, with the Germans and the German regulator because he was running under a sort of a Serbian license, but a politically it was moving kind of to the to the to the right in germany uh, and it had sort of vaccine skepticism as a kind of component of its coverage so no wonder regulators were getting concerned if it's moving kind of politically to the far right and was uh, promoting vaccine skepticism so yeah it, it does seem like it was the kremlin trying to cause trouble in in sort of german opinion and, and german politics
2: okay one apiece uh let's go for question number three uh, which lovable cartoon bunny may soon, through a convoluted series of mergers and acquisitions, end up playing Premier League
3: football? <laughs> um, I think I know the story. I don't know the answer to the, the question. you got to buzz in, oh, buzz Scott, in first. Scott, Scott, so Scott. Scott. Um, is this about the whole BT Sport thing? About how BT Sport and Discovery might end up becoming partners? Which I, get, I yeah, can so see from the, either side. The, the
2: lovable the lovable cartoon bunny is Bugs Bunny, oh. uh, <laughs> as uh, as a Warner Media property.
3: Oh, right, okay, yeah, I can see that now. So
2: what? So what? So what's happening in BT Sport and Discovery, just quickly?
3: So BT Sport have been um, uh, uh, a kind of major player in terms of football for the last few years but it seems to be the case that BT now want to double down on improving internet speeds and doesn't really want to run a sports channel as much they've been looking for a partnership or a buyer for a while and Discovery that already have um, uh, the Olympics of course throughout Europe um, already have Eurosport are thinking heck we can actually have a lot more subscribers and maybe grow our base a bit so i can see it certainly from discovery's side and for bt getting rid of something they don't really want to be that invested in going forward
2: uh correct and congratulations scott that makes you the quiz wish. Yeah, yeah I defer, I <laughs> de- the prize
0: is in the post i defer to you scott yeah you did well on that on on the first and third one you i you uh helped me helped me out <laughs> Uh, you're oh, your
2: the post. But infor- no, unfortunately, no, the post is so delayed now in the UK, you'll never receive it. Oh, wow. Right, uh, that's our show for today. Uh, my thanks to Robert Moore and Scott Bryan. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, show us you mean it by doing any or all of these things. Uh, why not tell your colleagues about the show on Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, you can take out our Riverside FM trial using the code MEDIAPOD and remember to become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash MEDIAPOD. Uh, and of course, follow us to hear new episodes when they drop On your podcast app of choice weekly. Uh, You can do that uh, via podfollow.com/slash the media podcast. Uh, My name is Matt Deegan. You can find my weekly newsletter about the audio industry at mattdeegan.com. The producer was Matt Hill with support from Phoebe Adler Ryan. It was a Rethink Audio production. We will see you next week.